0: Well, I don't know if you've thought about this. Uh, If you've followed the Lord and you've longed for Him to be glorified, I'm sure you have at some point, what it would look like for a revival to break forth. A revival, not some scheduled big church meeting revival in that sense, but a true, genuine, God-sent revival. What would that look like if you were to be in Nineveh Back in the Old Testament, when Jonah preached and the text says that the whole city believed God, what would it look like to have an entire city turning to the true God in genuine repentance and faith? Or to be in New England in the 1700s under Jonathan Edwards' ministry or during the ministry of George Whitefield, when the gospel is being preached and the new birth is being proclaimed. And here and there, left and right, everywhere you look, people are repenting and turning to the Lord Jesus Christ in genuine repentance and faith, what would that look like? I mean, could you imagine being in these types of situations? Do you long for that? Large crowds, I'm sure. Everyone excited about Jesus. Everyone talking about him. A strong focus on him and his power. The crowds draw near. The churches are full. Certainly, these things would be the marks of a true revival, right? J.I. Packer uh, studied revivals, genuine revivals, and he observed 10 features of a genuine revival. Let me just rattle them off for you. He said, First, God comes down. So it's a work of God, it's not something manipulated or manufactured by men. God's word or God comes down, God's word pierces. Third, man's sin is seen. Fourth, Christ's cross is valued. Fifth, change goes deep. Sixth, love breaks out. Joy fills hearts. The church becomes itself. The lost are found. And the tenth, he observes, is that Satan keeps pace. In other words, during a true act of God, there's genuine conformation people are being changed and transformed to be like Jesus and that 10th point that he draws out is intriguing to me he says Satan keeps up Satan keeps pace and what he means by that is this that during times of extravagant revival and spiritual things when real spiritual life is uh, coming forth because of God's powerful working there is always a counter-movement and the counter-movement typically is not some external opposition from the outside like persecution. Oftentimes those things are like fans to the flame of revival. He says what actually happens and what slams the brakes on genuine revival is a cheap imitation of a revival, a counterfeit revival, something that looks very similar to the real thing but in reality, is hollow. It has all the external markings of revival, but in reality, it is no true revival because hearts are not being changed. The, f- the flocking crowds are all there. They're all excited, and perhaps we're even all talking about Jesus. But deep at the heart level, there has been no repentance. There has been no transformation. I want to show you something that's happening in Mark, Chapter 3, verses 7 to 12, that if you were to read it very quickly, because it seems like a transitionary kind of segment in the book, you would pass through it, you wouldn't think twice about it, and perhaps what you might be thinking is that, wow, look at this revival. Because here we have large crowds, people excited about Jesus, people believing in his power to heal. All kinds of enthusiasm and hype his name Jesus's name is spread far and wide and everyone wants a little piece of Jesus and yet, what we're gonna see is we look closer if you slow down and read it you're gonna realize that this is no revival and then I think uh, the author here mark intends to communicate something really important about what's going on in Jesus's ministry And how there's a large mass of people who are really excited about Jesus and do not actually know him. Let's take a look at the text here. Chapter 3, verses 7 to 12. Let's read it. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea. This is right after he was in the the synagogue. He healed the man with the withered hand. The Pharisees and the Herodians in verse 6 want to destroy him, and they're teaming up to do it, and so Jesus withdraws to the sea. That's the Sea of Galilee. And a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. And when the great crowd heard all that he was doing, mark that, they came to him Short, it seems to be not really a big part of this life of Christ. It seems like kind of a transitionary moment in Jesus' ministry, but I'm going to point out there's actually something very fascinating happening here that can teach us a lot. Let's take a look at this crowd, all right? Uh, it's a great crowd. You see that in two different points there. In verse 7, it's called a great crowd. In verse 8, it's called a great crowd. This is a massive crowd that I think is in the thousands, perhaps the tens of thousands. In chapter 1, verse 33, uh, the text says that the whole city, after hearing about Jesus' healing power, was coming to see him. The whole city. Now here, he mentions not one city. uh, He mentions several regions. Uh, Get a picture of this. the Galilee, that's a region in the north. Judea, that's a region in the south. Jerusalem, that's the capital city down in the south. Idumea, that's south of Jerusalem, even further down. Beyond the Jordan, that's east. And from around Tyre and Sidon, that's about as west you can get before hitting the Mediterranean Sea. And that's north. These are cities kind of farther out. These are Jews. These are Gentiles all coming together because they had heard of Jesus. He is immensely popular. Everyone is crowding Jesus. They all like Jesus. They had heard things. Look at what they're doing. Verse 7 says they follow him. Verse 8 says they came to him. Verse 10 says they press around him to touch him. I mean, you start getting a picture in your mind. It's like ants swarming a jolly rancher that fell on the floor. You ever had ants in your house? I mean, this is like uh, seagulls at the beach when you left your picnic out. They're, they're swarming with no sense of personal space. They're getting as close as they can. And uh, you're going to love this. They're, by and large, sick people. They, their diseased ones are the most aggressive ones. They want to, verse 10 says, all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. How dare they? Sick people without masks. No social distancing. What's going on here? Don't they know they should be wearing masks and staying six feet apart? Well, they don't care. They want to get close to Jesus. Here they are pressing in on Jesus. This crowd is so large, so unruly, so aggressive. Jesus actually has to tell, get this, his disciples, get a boat ready. They might crush me. In other words, I need an escape route because this crowd is so big and aggressive and unruly and they're pressing on him. I imagine thousands, perhaps tens of thousands of people Crowding around Jesus, they want to touch him, they're pressing, they're trying to get through, they're wrangling with one another so they can be close to Jesus. Jesus recognizes the danger and says, get a boat, guys, because they might trample on me and I might die. Startling statement, isn't it? Reminds us of the the humanity of Christ, that if he were to be trampled on, he could be crushed. I mean, he admits it right there. They might crush me. He's not a superman. We we tend to forget this. You, You read about Jesus in the Gospels, you think if he got shot with a gun, the bullet would bounce off. That's not the case. If feet trample on him, he will be crushed. If nails pierce him, he will bleed. Notice about the crowd, by the way, that there's nothing in the text that indicates that these people actually care to know Jesus. You see that? They don't actually care to know Jesus. In fact, I want you to see this in verse 8. It says, when the great crowd heard what he was. Do you see it there in verse 8? See it in the text. Observe it. When they heard what he was doing. It doesn't say when they heard what he was teaching. When they heard what he was saying. When they heard his message of repentance. When they learned who he was and what he had come to do. They came. To come to him, to know him, to repent, to follow him. No, the text doesn't say that. It says when they heard that he was preaching. I mean, or it says what he was doing. When they heard what he was doing, they, they wanted to flock around him. I mean, imagine the gossip going through the towns of Judea, Jerusalem, and Galilee at these times. This man, he, he confronts the Pharisees in these epic showdowns. I want to see one. He, he heals lepers. He casts out demons. He's amazing. I want to hear. Or better yet, I want to see him. I want to get close to him. I want to touch him. Maybe he'll heal me. Maybe I'll be fixed of my problems. Jesus becomes like some sponge that they're using to squeeze and extract healing. They're not too interested in what he has to say. At least nothing in the text indicates that. In fact, they endanger his life by swarming him. Not to hear what he has to say, but to see a miracle or to experience a miracle. These people follow him for his power and for his miracles and not for his message, not for his teaching. It's made clear in verse 10, they pressed around him. Why? To touch him. Why? Because he had healed many. That's the reason. That's why they're there. He had healed people and they came to be healed. He had healed many people, he had fixed their problems, and so they came because they wanted a part of it. Do they love Jesus? There's nothing in the text that would say they would. I mean, there's a kind of love that the world calls love. It's not actually love, it's actually more like a lust. It's a kind of attraction that only wants to take, it doesn't want to actually care for or love or get to know. It's like someone who says they love the forest and is willing to tear down all the trees to build a log cabin for themselves. Or someone who says they love nature and is willing to destroy it to drill for oil. It's a kind of love that's not a true love. It's more of a lust. It's more of a taking kind of love. Here's a crowd that says they love Jesus. Or you can imagine them saying that. I want Jesus. I want to be near Jesus. I'm excited about Jesus. And at the end of the day, it seems that they're willing to risk crushing him, to get near him, to be healed by him. Jesus knew he could be crushed by this crowd. That's why he tells his disciples to get a boat ready. And le- listen to this. This is amazing. And let me just uh, mention this to point you to the heart of Christ. Matthew includes a little detail. When he's talking about this same situation in chapter 12 of Matthew, verse 15, it says this. Listen to this. Many followed him. And it says that Jesus... Healed them all. You want to get the, uh, the seagulls to leave your picnic alone, you do what my wife does. You say, stop feeding them. Don't give them any food. Why? Well, why? Because what happens when you feed them? More come. They stick around. Well, Jesus just keeps healing them. You might say, Jesus, if you don't want all these people to crush you, stop healing them. And yet Jesus' heart is so filled with love to people that don't know him, that don't care to know him, that aren't coming to him for the right motives, he keeps overflowing compassion to heal them. It says he healed them all. He is willing to risk being crushed so that he could bring healing to the crowds. Crowds that don't know him, hadn't listened to him, they just wanted to get something from him. Listen, this is part of Jesus' very nature, his character. He faces the possibility of being crushed that he might heal. Does that sound familiar to you? He faces the possibility of suffering that he might save. He faces the possibility of dying that others might live, others who do not deserve life. You know what this kind of attitude leads to in Jesus' heart? This kind of compassion will lead him to the cross where he will not merely face the possibility of death, but he will subject himself to death. Why? That others might live. Others that don't deserve life might live. This is the heart of Christ that leads us to the heart of the gospel is that Jesus is such a Savior That would willingly give his life to provide life for others, though it will cost him greatly, though he will suffer for it. The cross is a culmination of this, but here in this section, we see hints of the kind of compassion and love and mercy that is willing to pour out grace to people who do not deserve it, even if it might cost him his comfort or his very life. Friends, Jesus went to the cross to be crushed by his Father to pay for sin's penalty for anyone and everyone who would ever repent and believe. Isaiah chapter 53, verse 10 says that it was the will of the Lord to crush him, that the Father crushed the Son at the cross because the Son had voluntarily offered him up to be a sacrifice for the sins of his people. This is the compassion of Christ. And you and I who are undeserving, who who have not had pure motives, who have been sinning from the beginning of our lives, nothing but sin, unable, unwilling to truly understand all that God is for us. He came to die for our sins, church, to rise again from the dead and to offer salvation to everyone who repents and believes. This is amazing. And so we see here, even now, that these people who are more like gnats that would have been annoying to the rest of us, to Jesus, are image bearers, that he heals, that he is compassionate toward, that he extends mercy, that he gives healing to these people who do not deserve it. That's the Savior we have. And if you want to come to him, you don't have to deserve it. You can't deserve it. You come to him because his heart is big with love and compassion to the undeserving. And if you're not a Christian, you can come to him by faith right now and receive his mercy. This crowd is massive, crowding around him, pressing in on him. And look at verse 11. It speaks of these unclean spirits. So apparently, not only are there sick and diseased people, there are also people with unclean spirits there, demon-possessed. And they come, and the spirits cry out. You are the Son of God. It seems that the demons have a better understanding of the person of Christ than the crowd does. They're crying out his true identity, you're the Son of God. There's some speculation of why demons would do this. One, it was a common understanding in these days, or at least a common belief, that if you could properly identify someone, that you asserted your authority over them. So it might be that the demons are trying to assert their authority over Jesus by correctly identifying him. Other possibility, and we know this from other texts in the Gospels, is that the demons were terrified of Jesus. And when they see him, you hear them crying out, is it time? Is it time? You're going to torment me already? And they're afraid of the torment that awaits them. In either case, what's happening here is they're shouting out his true identity. The people of the crowds obviously would have heard what these people are shouting out. How would Jesus, you think, respond to this? Jesus, what does he do in response to these demonic people who are shouting his true identity? Does he say, why? Yes, in fact, I am the Son of God. And everyone else, you got to listen to these people. He doesn't do that. It says in verse 12, he strictly ordered them not to make him known. That was his response. Don't tell anyone. Yeah, I am the Son of God. Don't tell anyone. Don't spread it. I don't want anyone else to know. He's strict in this. He orders them, don't tell anyone. You might start thinking about this and say, why is Jesus doing this? Doesn't he want his true identity to be spread? And then you might think about it a little further, and you might come to the conclusion, you will say, well, maybe he does want his identity spread. He just doesn't want demons to serve as his missionaries. And that would make sense. But listen, this is kind of an interesting thing. If you've been reading Mark and paying attention, you would know that this isn't the only time that Jesus silences people who know his identity. In fact, turn back to chapter 1, verse 41. And you see the leper who just gets healed by Jesus. Jesus touches him. He is willing to heal him. He says, be clean. It says immediately the leprosy left him and he was made clean. And then listen to this. And Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once and said to him see that you say nothing to anyone that's not a demon that's a guy who got healed of his leprosy hey don't say anything and then if you were to keep reading in chapter 5 verse 43 Jesus raises a little girl from the dead and people know and he says to them he strictly charged them that no one should know this Keeping his healing power a secret. Chapter 7, verse 36. He heals a deaf mute. And then afterwards, he charges them to tell no one. Chapter 8, verses 29 and 30. This is the part where the, he's saying, do you know who I am? It says, he asked them, verse 29, do you, who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, you are the Christ. That is, you are the Messiah. Peter is right on. And Jesus says, he strictly charged them to tell no one. Well, what's the point? I thought Jesus came to spread the message of who he truly was, right? And here he is after healing a leper, a little girl, a deaf mute, and even talking to his very own disciples, and he's telling them all, be silent. Don't tell anyone. What's going on here? When we get to the bottom of this, it makes a very critical point, and I want you to hear this. Uh, we got to get to the bottom of it first, though. Why does Jesus continually, through Mark, silence people who know his identity? I'll tell you one thing. He doesn't do it throughout the whole book. Toward the end, he says to his disciples, now you've got to go and tell everyone about me. But up to a certain point, he's silencing everyone. Why? Here's why. Jesus' silencing of the people who actually know him is actually a way of revealing himself. Follow me here. There is a way to be known without being known. Isn't there? How many of you know your favorite celebrity? At one point you might all say, I know my celebrity. I've seen all his movies. I've seen all her shows. And yet, you'd also have to admit you don't really know them. Jim Carrey, famous actor, comedian, posted a picture that was kind of famous on the Internet where he wrote on his forehead, no one, and then he circled his nose, and then on his cheek he wrote, me. No one knows me. His point was to say that everyone thinks they know him, Everyone thinks they got him pegged and his point was to say that none of you actually know me. In other words, there's a way for people to know about an individual without actually knowing the person. And listen, that's what's happening with these crowds. These crowds, do they know Jesus or do they know about Jesus? You see, what's happening is this popularity is spreading so rapidly that Jesus knows that people don't really know Him. They know about Him. They've heard stories of Him. They've heard about the miracles and the power. But they have not actually listened to Him, to His message, to His teaching. They have not interacted with Him for who He truly is. They've got a caricature in their mind, and that is what they know, but they don't know Jesus. And so Jesus wants to hush down the hype so that people will actually listen to his message, which is a message of repentance, a message that is engaging the mind and the heart of the people. Jesus doesn't want to be gawked at like some celebrity. He doesn't want to be known about. He wants to be known intimately. And so this is the whole picture of what's happening here. What's happening in this little section, I think, here's the author's intent because that's what we're aiming for when we preach through the Word. What did Mark include this for? Here it is. He wants to tell us about a bustling crowd that's pressing in on Jesus for healing, that knows about Jesus, that doesn't actually know him. And as they do that, we see Jesus working against the hype, Silencing those who reveal his true identity. Why? So that people can actually hear his true message. So that the hype doesn't distort people's understanding of who he actually is. That's what the author's doing. Jesus had to hush down the hype so that people could hear him. And so there's three applicational questions I want to ask that I think will apply these principles to our lives, that the hype can be a distraction to actually knowing Jesus, that the crowds can actually know about him without knowing him, and that Jesus wants to be actually known through his word, through his teaching, not through the enthusiasm, the experience, the hype of a crowd that has no idea what he actually has taught. Three questions to apply this to our lives. First, do you know Jesus, or do you know about Jesus? Do you really know him? As in you have a relationship with him? As in you've read his word, that he has revealed himself to us, and you've come to believe it? Or has there been some other wave that you've been caught up into, whether it be hype, emotionalism or even the background of a family that just says yeah we're all Christian but you've never come to know him yourself you've never come to read his own teachings you've never come to repent from the idols that have ruled your life to turn from them and to trust in him friends there are a lot of people in our day that are more like the crowds that they really like Jesus and they believe in a sense something about him they believe something of his power they believe something of his miracle working ability but they don't really have a relationship with him there are some churches that build their ministries on hype they try to get people in the door through hype and enthusiasm in creating an experience and there are lots of people who don't actually know Jesus because they've never actually heard his message but they're caught into the gravitational pull of the hype, just like the crowds here. So do you know him? Do you really know him? Do you really have a relationship, as in you've read what he's taught, and you've come to believe it, and you've come to embrace him as your Lord and your Savior? Do you really know him? That's the first question. Second question. Do you want Jesus? Or just his gifts do you want Jesus or just his gifts you see that in the crowd here don't you they wanted Jesus didn't they they wanted his power didn't they they were very positive about Jesus weren't they they loved Jesus you might say they wanted to be near Jesus there's all kinds of enthusiasm about Jesus see that catch he wanted them to know him but they came after him not wanting to know him but just to extract something from him they wanted the gifts of Jesus listen this is a very important reality for us to face there are people who say they know Jesus and say they are trusting Jesus and actually what they are is like this crowd they've just come to him for some gifts they don't actually want Jesus himself they want the gifts they don't want the giver and so they say I trust Jesus but that's not the question listen friends listen to this the question is not whether you trust Jesus someone without saving faith can trust Jesus to give them the wrong things the question is what are you trusting Jesus for what are you coming to Jesus Four, there are whole systems of theology that are built on coming to Jesus to make your life easier, to gain wealth and health and prosperity. And anyone in that system would say, I'm coming to Jesus because I trust him. And Jesus would say, you don't know me. You're coming to me for all the wrong reasons. Because those who truly come to Jesus and receive him, with saving faith are those who come to him as a savior for mercy, for forgiveness. And they come to say, you're my savior, my Lord, you're my treasure, I want you. Even if I get no gifts, I want you as my Lord and my savior. What are you trusting him for? And there are even people that come into the evangelical church and even into good Bible teaching churches and deep down the relationship with Jesus is based on this belief that if they follow Jesus good enough Jesus is obligated to make life easier for them and that's just more evidence that you actually didn't want Jesus you just wanted him to give you a better life hey Jesus scratch my back I'll scratch yours if you come to Jesus to get stuff from him as if Jesus is a means to an end you don't know Christ Jesus is the end. Jesus is the goal. Jesus is the purpose. We don't come just to get our idols from him. He will not allow that. Jesus will not polish our idols. We come for Jesus, to Jesus, to be our Lord and our King and our Savior and our treasure, to treasure him, admire him, and cherish him in delight in him, not to come to him to get the things we actually love. We come to him because he is the thing that we actually love. And so let me ask you, do you love Jesus? Or are you like this bustling crowd that just wants to get something from Jesus? John Piper has a, a great piercing quote that will convict you as it's convicted me. He says this, if you could have heaven with no sickness and with all the friends you ever had on earth and all the food you've ever liked and all the leisure activities you've ever enjoyed and all the natural beauties you ever saw and all the physical pleasures you've ever tasted and no human conflict or any natural disasters, could you be satisfied with heaven? If Christ were not there. Could you? If you could, your treasure isn't Christ, it's his gifts. So let me ask you, is Christ your treasure? Is Christ your joy? Do you love the giver, not just the gifts? Here's how you know. What happens in your heart when the gifts don't come like you expect them to come? You don't get healed. You don't get the promotion. Life gets hard. The hour looks grim. Can you still say, Jesus, you're enough for me? Jesus, you're my treasure. You could say, I might lose everything, but if I have Christ, I have all. And you say with the song, give me Jesus, give me Jesus. You can have all this world, but give me Jesus. Do you want him or just his gifts? Third, is your commitment to Christ rooted in genuine faith in God's word? Or some emotional experience that you've had? is your commitment rooted in the fact that you actually believe what he has taught in his word or are you following Jesus because it's exciting because it's a great experience for you because there's a lot of enthusiasm and hype around the people who follow Jesus and I want to be a part of that or have you heard his message embraced it in repentance and faith coming to him recognizing I have nothing I'm a sinner I'm in abject poverty in need of grace Lord Jesus Give me grace. Give me the the salvation I need. I want you to turn with me to John chapter 6. And here's where we're going to end. Turn with me to John chapter 6. In this portion of God's word, Jesus is teaching these crowds. And this takes place after the section we just read in Mark. And he's teaching the crowds. And the crowds really can't handle what he's teaching. It's too hard for them. It's too extreme. It's too much. And so verse 60, chapter 6, verse 60, it says, When many of the disciples heard this, this is not talking about the twelve. It's talking about the crowds that had become kind of followers of him. When they heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to this? They all kind of start to leave. Look at verse 66. Skip down a little bit. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. It's too hard. Many of them just leave. They, They can't handle the teaching. The teaching's too much. So Jesus says to the 12, now just they remain, do you, here's the question, do you want to go away as well? Do you want to leave too? What I'm saying is hard. Do you want to leave as well? Simon Peter, look at his response. This is glorious. This is the heart of every true Christian. This is the heart of our church. This is what we sung this morning. Verse 68, Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. You see, the hype disappears. The enthusiasm of the crowds is gone. The party's over and all you have is a few people and the words of Christ ringing in the air. And at the end of the day, you have to evaluate, why are you following Jesus? Is it because of the enthusiasm that's around his name, or is it because you actually believe what he's taught? You take his word, and you say, this is God's word. I believe it by faith. I'm embracing it. There are a lot of people that are fueled by hype, and they go to their churches every Sunday to be hyped up. To get an experience that will get them through another week, and we want to stand on the opposite side of the spectrum and say, Why do we come? Why do we come to hear again, again, and again? Why do we come to sing to Jesus Christ? Why do we come to worship in His name? And you know what the answer is? Just because you, Jesus, have the words of eternal life, we believe them. They're our whole hope. We are embracing these words as our life, as our food, as The very answer for the ache of our souls. It is through these words that we really know Jesus Christ and God the Father through Him. And so is your commitment rooted in genuine faith in God's Word. You will know, you will know where your faith is rooted when the party's over, life's hard, everyone has abandoned you. Just like these disciples, where will you cling then? My prayer is that you would cling like Peter to the words of Christ. And you will say, where else could I go? Where else could we go, church? Where else could we go? Then to come again and again to the deep well of the word of God, which gives us the ability to know Christ. We are not going to be like this crowd by the grace of God that's fueled by hype, that knows about Jesus but doesn't really know him, that comes to Jesus again and again but only to extract gifts. We come to Christ because he's our treasure. And we come to him because he has spoken that which is true. And we turn from all else to him. And we do it today and we do it every day because where else could we go? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for being so much greater than we could ever imagine, that we could ever make up in our minds. Thank you for a, a word that you've given to us in your scriptures that really do reveal the true nature of Christ, the true message of Christ, so that we might truly know you Oh, Lord, if there are people here who are like the great crowd, they'd know about Jesus, but they don't know him. They come to him, but just for his gifts. Their commitment is not really to his word, but more to the enthusiastic hype that's around him. Lord, I pray that there would be true repentance and turning to embrace Christ for who he really is. And that we would be able to say truly from the depths of our hearts, all I have is Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.